This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a first time guest, but it's somebody that I've known uh, more or less for 30 plus years. Mike Lissigore of Celerity Works is a uh, project management expert. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today. But Mike, welcome to the show, man. Hey, this is such a pleasure to uh, be talking to you in this format. Yeah, I mean, at a distance, right? So you don't want a close proximity, but that's it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, I intimated that we've known each other. We are not positive we've met, but we're pretty sure we've met. But we've known each other by reputation for, you know, over 30 years. So tell people who you are and what you do. Currently, I'm a writer more than anything, but I've been in the government market since the 70s. I'm a business development, contracting, project management expert. I play the harmonica and sing in a local blues band, which is probably the most significant to our listeners. I'm also a a co-founder and the chief knowledge officer at GovFlex.com. GovFlex matches government contractors and federal agencies with freelance experts. And I founded Celerity Works in 1999, uh, pretty much to help organizations better manage and grow their government business. So I've advised over 70 contractors and agencies and coached over 250 executives, project managers, and BD professionals. I also implemented the PM process and training for Mantech and several small businesses and the risk management process for GSA FedSim. And prior to that, to close it off, I guess, I was an operations and business development executive for IT contractors for 13 years. And before that, a project manager and engineer. Okay. Among your other books, (laughs) the one that we're going to talk about today is the essential guide to managing a government project and uh, subtitled what every project manager should know. Uh, This book is available on Amazon as uh, uh, paper bound or Kindle. I suggest you get the, the hard copy though, the, the paperback because there's a lot of charts in here and there's a ton of white space. So if if you're into project management or if you're into learning about it, this is the ideal formatted book for taking notes as you go along. And I always make notes in books that I find useful. So start starting from, but let's let's go back a little bit. I mean, you know, this market is uh, quite insular in a lot of ways. So it's not surprising that I've known who you were for for a long time but you started getting back on my radar i don't know eight or nine years ago when you started doing the occasional article for nick wakeman at uh at wash tech did he approach you did you approach him what what happened there you know i think it for several years my wife and i lived in the dc area for 20 years and we've been out here for 
17 years on an island, a ferry ride from Seattle. Um, and, but I've, you know, I've had clients in DC all through this period and have stayed close to both, uh, you know, uh, Washington Tech and Federal Computer Week. And Nick and I have known each other for many years and different topics would come up in the last 10 or 15, 10 years that like lowest price, technically acceptable, and that would um, <laughs> ring my bell, so to speak, that I had strong feelings about. And I would uh, approach Nick about writing article about it. And then a few, there were times when Nick would email me and do the same and say, Hey, would you be interested in exploring this? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, basically same thing with me, you know, we were, uh, he had an article or two from me, they were sporadic and I forget where we were, but he, you know, we were chatting. He says, well, why don't you just do something more regular? Why don't you do something every month? So for the last 12 years or so, uh, He's gotten an article pretty much every month, at least 10 articles a year, but it flexes me. I don't know about you, but I, I like to, the, the process of writing helps me clarify what I'm thinking. So it's an important part of, of my personal education. So as a marketing guy, I'm always concerned with helping companies win business and I speak at, you know, APMP events, uh, other broader-based GovCon events, and it's always about, you know, tracking this uh, upcoming bid, putting together your team, blah, mm-hmm. blah, you know, it, and it's extremely important, right? But what I rarely see, uh, and maybe I'm just hanging out in the wrong place, are are things about how to manage that work once you win it. So you get a task order. You you win a sole award. There's this whole project management side of things that I knew about, but my my knowledge of it is really an inch. <laughs> yeah. That's the reason I wrote this book. I I thought I was I wrote two books at the end of last year that weren't business books. They were more about surviving the pandemic and things like that. But I revisited and felt compelled to put together this book because, you know, through my whole career, I've watched government projects uh, repeatedly fail. Some have been really successful, but more, much higher percentage, as you know, um, are either over cost or over budget. I mean, over budget, you know, schedule delays or end up canceled. I worked on some of the worst government projects in the 80s and not 70s, 80s and 90s. I worked on FAA modernization. I worked on the space shuttle out at Vandenberg Air Force Base where we spent a billion dollars building the ground support system and then Congress decided not to do a polar orbited space shuttle. So they mothballed it. That went four years of my life. You know, so and I worked on tax modernization for the IRS. I mean, all these programs were plagued with problems. And there was a common denominator. If you, t- if you strip away all the problems that are implied by, you know, c- congressional pro- budget process and all of those things that really make screw with government projects being done consistently well, one big thing glares. And especially in this last 
you know, 17, 18 years where I have coached so many few hundred project managers and have reviewed so many technology projects. Every single project manager seems to learn all the same mistakes, all the same lessons over again. It's even with PM, PMI training, you know, it, which is really invaluable, right? The Program Management Institute. I mean, there's really a lot of people go and get their PMI certification now. But once you throw PMs into their first project, all this knowledge just fly, falls by the wayside. And, and companies don't have a, really don't, and neither does government, a way of sharing lessons learned. They, they don't pass it down. And so, and the PMI training isn't necessarily in many areas consistent with the government way, with way government does business. So I really felt the need to write what to do and what not to do. Okay. That's a good place to take a break. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Tower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Mike and I shall return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Mike Lissagor. Mike's new book is The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project. It's available at Amazon as an ebook or paper. It's an oversized paperback. It's like t- your regular eight and a half by 11 uh, size. And it's it's well worth getting it that way because you will want to take notes when you get this bad boy. So, uh, so winning business is one thing, but what people need to win those subsequent contracts are those good CPARs. So, and if, if you don't manage your project, well, the likelihood of that happening is what? (laughs) Uh, 5%. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. So, What what makes government projects different or more difficult than uh, than non government projects? I I've thought a lot about this. I've uh, I've even written some articles about it in the past. The and I have maybe there's five or six things that stick in my mind. And one is is there well and, and none of these will be a surprise to you, Mark. That there's com government has quite often usually more complex business cases and especially they have multiple end users, including even other agencies. So there's so many stakeholders and it's just that makes it more complicated for a project manager or for a company managing projects, doing business with the government, numerous acquisition vehicles, very different than the commercial marketplace. I mean, as you know, there's, you know, numerous contract types and, many clauses and federal regulations that contractors have to be aware of. There are stricter labor regulations, which greatly impacts the ability to staff a project. There's regulations on how prime contractors can subcontract, right? With other companies. And a lot of times they have to actually run a competition for vendor products um, in order for fair and equal competition. So let's see government agencies, almost never can afford, this is a big one, can almost never afford or risk completely replacing legacy computer systems. Um, you know, bless Cobell programmers, um, probably keeping Florida's economy going still. You know, so <laughs> obta- in obtaining the definition for these 
archaic systems and managing these interfaces for a contractor is really, really a challenge because a lot of times even the government hasn't documented those interfaces well. And then lastly, I would say that cost schedule technical configuration changes to a, an approved project baseline is much more cumbersome. You know, doing configuration management is more cumbersome. But I, I do want to add something because that sounds so negative, like anyone listening, anyone who's a government contractor listening has just turned off their computer and said, oh, God, I'm not going to do business with the government anymore. Government spends hundreds of billions of dollars every year on technology projects. There tends to be more job security, and the government always, almost always pays its bills. So even though project success can be more elusive, there is an immensely strong business case to be made for entering and thriving this market. And it's kept you and I employed for decades. Yeah, really. Um, so when, when a contract is awarded, I want to talk about that CPARS side for a second. Are there usually, often, or rarely stated components for how you will be rated for managing this project? Clarify that. Do you mean... Do, in, in the contract, do they tell you how you're going to be graded? Oh, um, depends on the contract vehicle. So if the contract, if you're talking about which um, the services business, mm -hmm. as opposed to development, if you, um, you know, delivering people as opposed to systems and so on. If you're talking about services, um, it really depends on the contract type. If, it, if it's just a labor hour contract, which most major, majority are, then you don't really, quite often the, there aren't very, really clear criteria of how your performance will be measured other than you'll give us good people and we'll be happy with those people. So CPARS on services contract is really different than the government's ability to do past performance on other, on, uh, other types of contracts that can have award fee, for instance, as part of the contract where they have clear indication and definition of these are the success criteria we will grade you by. And, and you actually for an award fee contract, in order to get your fee, you have to meet those CPAR-like criteria. So it really does, a lot depends on the type of contract as to what's included in it. But then the other thing is, this is all done by people. And in my experience, a, a contractor can be doing a great job. And the, the, the person that's actually, you know, the contractor self-evaluating and then the person in the government you know, there's all, there's emotions involved. There's personal likes and dislikes and so on. So it's an objective, subjective system, if you will. It's probably better than nothing, of course, but it's not perfect. Okay. So, um, so you decide to write this book. Uh, was, was there a, a void in the PMI literature? Um, I mean, other than the fact that they aren't, focused on government contracts or government projects i'd say that was the gap the, the the reason for this book was to to take what is the standard project management structure you know which is uh your kind of your standard list of you know 
uh, how you do how you do a project that I learned many times over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, from requirements, project planning, you know, all those key elements, staffing, schedule, contracts, subcontracts, facilities, security, quality assurance, you know, and then projects, execution, monitoring and control and then project closeout. And you take those and those are very standard project type activities. And that process has been laid out for decades. What hasn't been laid out and that I've never seen in one place is on a government project, what does that look like? You know, flow diagrams that show what are the key elements of doing configuration management? How do you do requirements definition on a government type project? Contracts, what do government contracts look like? Uh, another big one is um, the financial aspects. If you're a project manager, what should you know about when it comes to the various type of labor pricing labor, you know, and, and, and the components of a labor rate. I can't tell you how few project managers in government contractors, if you ask them, you get an eye glaze. They don't, they don't understand labor rates at all, yet they're supposed to manage and hire people. To them. They don't, they don't know what overhead is, GNA, the different components that make up a labor rate you know, that we're going to charge the government for that kind of person. That's funny because on the bidding side, there are specialists in all of those areas. And oftentimes yep. even the larger companies will bring in those specialists. So maybe they should start inviting the, the proposed PM to sit in on those sessions as part of their uh, project education. Oh, absolutely. It's It's one of the, lessons in the book is if as soon as you're assigned to a project if you haven't been fortunate enough to to work the proposal or maybe you were the capture manager so you got to transition to the project manager and you probably have learned a lot of that just because you had to mm -hmm. but more often than not they've named a project manager as a key personnel in the project in the proposal that he or she isn't coming in until they award the contract. And so the smartest thing a PM can do is go back and interview the proposal manager, the capture manager, and the business development person and read the proposal front to back and ask questions and talk to the finance department. Get smart because you're really going to be required to manage to that. And you know, there's that old saying where when I was a BD guy, we always complain that the the project managers, you know, they can never, they never could be, they were never successful delivering what we promised. And, and, you know, so they made our past performance suck. And then the project managers are always going, the BD people and the capture people and the proposal people are always promising more than anyone could deliver. And so I'm, I'm, I fail before I even start. Yeah. So you, you, your CPARs are, are doomed from the outset. Um, so we'll take a break on that thought. <laughs> You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I shall return with Mike right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Mike Lissigore, author of The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project. Uh, and it's uh, it's published by GovFlex, a uh, company 
an organization that Mike is affiliated with, and it's available at Amazon as an ebook or hard copy. And I'll say this again, get the hard copy because this is the kind of thing you're going to want to make notes uh, in. You're going to tab it. Uh, you, you definitely want the, uh, the various appendixes. The glossary of terms, Mike, I, I thought was cool because uh, my first book, Government Marketing Best Practices, probably sold more books because of the 40-page uh, glossary than, than for the content. Because <laughs> it was, how do you speak government? Well, here it is. Uh, so um, one quick question before we, we get into uh, common mistakes. Um, this book was written, written for project managers on the contractor side, the government side, or both? Both. On the contractor side, it's um, for the obvious reason, because they're managing government projects. On the government side, for two reasons. A lot of, um, I did a fair amount of consulting for GSA and also several government agencies and project managers on the government side there's a lot of government projects that contractors don't get involved with or the project manager is in the government and contractors support that project manager. So there are thousands and thousands of government project managers, just like there are on contractors. And then the other thing is too few government project managers really understand how the government, how the industry project managers are managing their projects. And the, what I found was, is the better this understanding, the better both sides understand what their role is. And especially if the government COTARs and PMs and so on, understand what this company's, how this company is, the process they're using, they can really, um, it really avoids a lot of miscommunication and they can actually coordinate and and work together uh, in a more seamless way. And I saw this big time when I worked with GSA FedSim on their risk management, implementing their risk management process. So much of what I was doing was helping them understand, because I trained the trainers. So much of what, they, what I was doing was helping them understand the complexities of managing government projects. And it, it really makes a difference. Okay, cool. Um, so let's let's talk about some common uh, PM mistakes and how to avoid them. So um, we we've kind of touched on this one. Let's start though and take if if we need to a deeper dive into the lack of familiarity with a specific contract. Yeah, I I can't you know I can't tell you how many PMs haven't read their entire contract. Isn't that kind of like, it seems like, huh? Well, I mean, it's like you're going to teach a course and you're not going to read the book before you teach it. Yeah. Yeah. Or people that sign a contract and haven't read it. They buy a car and it's just too, you know, too laborious to, to read everything in it. Um, so that's a recipe for a disaster. So first thing I would tell a project manager, if they're listening today, is read your contract. And especially read the shalls and the will statements, right? The contractor shall do this. The government will do this. And that's how those terms are used. And 
Especially, and then also special clauses and addendums. There's always little sneaky clauses in the back that if you if you don't comply with those clauses, it can come back to haunt you and either your CPARs or when you go to deliver a system or when you're trying to wind up the contract and it turns out you've got more work to do. And same thing with the proposal. Re- read the proposal. You know, what, did, what was proposed? Sit in on those meetings. And if you can sit on those meetings, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you're, you've touched on this before, if you're the capture person, hopefully you've been through all of the meetings anyway, but it's not always the case. Yeah, no, definitely not. Okay. So let's move on to one that I hear about frequently, and that's poorly defined requirements. All IT projects, especially development, you know, system development kind of projects, always are supposed to start with a solid set of well-written technical operation requirements. Um, So, and these should clearly define what the end user wants. And uh, I was thinking this morning, one of my favorite quotes is by Lily Tomlin, who's probably said everything important that needs to be said in life. And she said, I've always wanted to be somebody, but I see now that I should have been more specific. (laughs) (laughs) And that really fits this context. In the late 70s, I was doing hardware design. I was designing printed circuit boards for an army shelter. And it was going to go in in these racks. And there were printed, you know, circuit boards. And, you know, I was young. I was in, you know, and I late my mid-20s. And I got um, the RPM got, I forget if he got fired or left on his own. And the owner of the company said, Hey, Mike, we want you to manage this whole project. And I said, wow, great, exciting new opportunity. And, you know, I didn't know that I was being thrown down a very deep well. And the, um, it turned out that the quality assurance acceptance person for the government, civil servant in the army had made a kind of a deal with had made a deal and said, hey, I understand with the uh, owner of our company, they shook hands and the PM nodded, our PM nodded, that you didn't have, that me, Mike, didn't have to do all this detailed documentation on printed circuit drawings and, you know, that would show where every component goes and everything, that we didn't have to do mill standard, which is much more rigorous documentation standard. Right. We go to, I go to acceptance tests, everything plugs in, everything works. And it was like a week before they replaced the QA person. The new QA lady comes in, sits down and looks at me and says, you know, usually before we start an acceptance test and go in the shelter, I'd like to see all the drawings. So I pull out the drawing. She goes, are these to these, aren't these supposed to be mill standard? I forget what it was, eight, four, eighty-five something. And, and I said, well, we had an agreement. She goes, let me stop you there. We're going to take a break. Call me back. This is exactly what she said. Call me back when you have the right level of documentation. It cost $450,000. Took me, me and my staff like, I don't know, month and a half to put all that together. So I really learned the lesson about get it in writing. Make sure you know what your requirements are. Here's another quick example. Um, Here's a, here's a FAA, well, actually, I should say it's a he who should not be named agency that does air traffic control. 
because I don't really want to say, you know, an agency's name. But, and this is so many years ago, nobody's going to care. But a, a requirement that I read working on an FA contract was the system shall be user-friendly. You can't test it. It's, it's, uh, it's ambiguous. It leaves them open to painful arguments with their government counterparts if you accept that. And you've got financial liability because that means whatever you, whatever we delivered, the government go, that's not user-friendly. So it's really, um, I think, a good example of why it's really important to have make sure that your requirements are specific enough with whatever you're doing for the government, that when you are complete, both sides can say, yes, you met them. And the last thing I would add that is so often, a lot of times contractors understand how important requirements are but they don't understand that if a requirement can't be tested that requirement's practically useless so you have to think about okay not only do i have to have a good set of requirements i also have to be able to prove that i met those requirements when i deliver it so there's two different aspects to that cool that's a huge stumbling block yeah <laughs> You can almost see Mark, you can look at almost every failed government project, and that's always there. It's it's just always there. Okay. We are going to take our last break. We have a few more uh uh common mistakes that we're going to be discussing. I'm here today with Mike Lissigore of Celerity Works. Uh the book is The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project, and we'll return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Mike Lissigore of Celerity Works. The book is The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project. We're, we're talking about managing a government contract and those types of projects. So um, let's start with flawed decision-making. It's another source of major project risk. I've witnessed $100 million design decisions. And speaking of marketing and business development, I've witnessed some of my clients making $100 million bid decisions in the hallway. We've all seen it. There's two or three executives and maybe one other per engineer or whatever standing in the hallway and they're talking and going, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to bid this or not? Or, or are we going to go with uh, aluminum? Or are we going to go, you know, and these decisions get made and they take maybe 10 minute discussion and the consequences are enormous. Avoid doing it. I've seen so such a profound improvement in project management and in the way companies approach managing projects with a disciplined decision-making approach. And, and I can summarize it here. Even if you just take a matrix, because I have a matrix mind, if you take a matrix and down one, down the left, you've got, here's all the success factors. And around the top, you've got alternatives. We can bid it, no bid, team with this company, this or that, or we're going to go with this computer system instead of this one as, a, as one of our vendors. And then you match the alternatives and you rate them against the success criteria. And you might think, well, yeah, but that's not really scientific. And the other thing it does, we put it up on a screen and everybody has to focus on that and think about, okay, let's at least numerically sort of a red, green, yellow, rate these things. It takes the emotion out of the system, you know, out of the process. 
that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And for anybody who uh, has that matrix mindset, I think it's pretty clear. So what about poorly defined stakeholder relationships? Yeah, this is really difficult to overstate um, because if you don't have good relationships as the project manager with your counterparts, obviously that's going to be a problem. But if you don't have good stakeholder relationships with the influencers and the ultimate decision makers, a lot of times in government con- on government contracts, they're funded by the non-technical part of the of the agency, its operations or maintenance. And they're the ones that are actually the decision makers on whether they're going to accept what you're doing or not. And if you ignore them, it's at your own peril. So basically don't wait until the end of your project to meet, have those people come in and go, wait a minute, I didn't agree with those requirements. You know, yes, it was the government's mistake, not including them when they defined the requirements and negotiated them with you. But that isn't going to help you see pars wise when it turns out that they won't accept what you did. And so uh, I always tell, and I've got one in the, I think I've got one in the book, a stakeholder, some stakeholder evaluation matrices and, and guidelines and a set of criteria you can use, whether they're, it's a table and whether they're influencers or decision makers or technical input. And it's really important to do that kind of analysis at the beginning of your contract. Yeah, you you do have it in here and you also go through the types of people that you need to consider having those relationships with. So it's pretty thorough. Um, and, and, you know, if you've read anything that I've written over the last 25 years, um, I constantly harp on this is a relationship-driven market. And this is an example of where relationships become, if, if possible, even more critical. Yeah. I have a 32-second example that's just because it's humorous. It was a government agency, not to be named. It, ma- it was a maintenance console that was being built by a big corporation that I was in. And it turned out that the uh, operations people, maintenance people, w- weren't involved in the requirements. They, they gave their initial set and then they disappeared. And they were so upset about it that when we delivered the console, you know, that the maintenance technician would sit at this computer console, they got their, the largest, in this case, man, maintenance tech they could find, put him at the console, his legs wouldn't fit under the keyboard and they, (laughs) and they rejected it. (laughs) Well, that's what cinder blocks are for. You lift it up. (laughs) Oh Lord. Um, Let's talk a little bit about risk, risk management, uh, mm-hmm. and and things that aren't necessarily discussed. And so many of the project reviews that I've attended as a and I attended it as a consultant for my clients, risk wasn't even on the agenda. It's sad to me because um, risk to me is the most important aspect of project management, and yet it's the least dealt with, and. It's uh, PMs and their management, they, they barely give risk lip service. And the other problem is the government rarely r- requires it and mentions it in RFPs. So you get these requests for proposal and it says you're going to, you have to do this, shall do this, shall do this. And it never says, and shall 
you know, give us, shall uh, implement a sound risk management process or something. I, I had I had an experience with this with GSA because FedSim on their major acquisitions wasn't doing risk at all. And the nice thing about risk management is that it not only identifies in the very beginning where the issues might, what risks may turn into issues and forces you to mitigate the major ones. And I've got a pretty significant chapter in the book about this. And there's and with a, a lot of guidance on how to do a streamlined risk management process. It doesn't have to be, people think risk and they're immediately dive into that they have to do statistical analysis. And no, it, Yes, on major complicated projects, but those typically they're going to do risk because they're so detailed. But when you talk just about services contracts, for instance, there's still a large element of risk that should be considered. And it's also a way to train new project managers. If you uh, institutionalize risk management in your, in your organization, it just automatically shares lessons learned. Because you're seeing what the risks are. You're seeing that on this project, they were mitigated this way. And even if you just use green, yellow, red for the different risks, and that way senior management, how many times have you sat in a, risk, in a, in a, in a review with senior management in your company to have senior managers dive into some stupid aspect like that's barely important because that was their background? I used to be a QA guy and I see that, you know, instead, if you really take all of the potential risks and you go, okay, here's the red ones that have the most likely probability of happening and the most and the biggest impact on success. And you may, that way you make executives concentrate where the payoff is because the green and yellow ones, just let the project manager and team deal with that. If you're the corporate corporate executives, you want to know that the red ones are getting dealt with. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I want to touch on one more though briefly before we uh, we vacate, and this is one that we've discussed <laughs> offline, and that's uh, that it takes too long for PMs to start preparing for that recompete. So, is is this because they're so busy? Is it an oversight or is it just not on their to-do list? Yes. I, I mean, I think it's all three, right? And it's not just PMs. It's probably not fair to just put it on them. A lot of the small, I, you know, I've co- um, coached executives, executives in charge of over 50, 50 small businesses. And very few of them get a start planning for the recompete eight months to a year on a multi-year contract is not too soon to be thinking, okay, what are our weaknesses? Let's shore them up so that when we go for the recompete, we know we've got that taken care of. How are our labor rates looking? Are we still competitive? Have our rates creeped up as we've given people raises? Are we going to need to consider maybe moving some people in and some new people with lower labor, you know, maybe not quite the highest skill category, you know, a blend where we st- obviously still give the government the key personnel they want, but it's always a mix, right, on labor contracts. And it's too late to do that when the, even when a draft RFP comes out from the government. The other thing I would add that I think is so important is rarely done because it's kind of like it's sacred and, and nobody wants to bring it up. It's like the emperor has no clothes, 
the owner of a small business or the run head of a business unit doesn't want to hear the answer to these questions. Has our contract been profitable? Is the work doable? Is this, has this customer been too difficult to work with? Does this client want us to win again? Does it take too much management attention to oversee the project for the amount of revenue and profit we're getting? And lastly, if it's a really small task, is it have this sufficient expansion potential to justify bidding it again? Or would we be better off subcontracting it or handing it off to a small business partner? Any of those questions, if they're yes, should be no bid. And you know as well as I do that very few companies will no bid a contract they already have, even though a lot of the times they may, if they had thought about it, realize that they're going to lose it. Yeah, and it still costs money. Mike, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in today or phoning in today or Skyping in today, whatever the heck we're doing. (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) Uh, The book is The Essential Guide to Managing a Government Project. I strongly suggest you add this to your library. And you can find Mike on LinkedIn, uh, Lissagor, L-I-S-A-G-O-R. Uh, Michael, uh, Mike at celerityworks.com is how you can reach him. And again, Mike, thanks for coming in, man. Appreciate it. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to connect. And I I hope it's uh, we do more often in the future. Well, there you go. Uh, There's a real good possibility of that. Um, For those of you who listen to the show, you know, this is not my day job. I'm not an employee of Federal News Network. I just have a show here. Uh, What I do is advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government, but I specialize in helping companies differentiate, build that subject matter expert platform, and leverage LinkedIn in particular to help them get the message out there and to build networks of key influencers in their niche. So if that resonates with you, drop me a line at markamtower@gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Amtower Off-Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. There's a better way to drive traffic to your e-commerce store. Harness the power of AdRoll Dynamic Display Ads. Promote your products with interactive ads or showcase your best offers with an in-ad video. Not only is it easy for customers, you save money too. Dynamic Display Ads lower cost per conversion by 50% compared to static ads. See the difference. Visit AdRoll.com to get started today. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave, and here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.